On Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. To join the conversation, call 508-871-7000. Now, here's your host, Mark Altman. Good morning. Welcome to iCommunicate. Happy to have you here with us. And uh, Ted, I'm so happy you're back. Good morning. Thank you. It's great to be back. Ted, I have to ask you the question that everybody's wondering, and that is, Without an episode of I Communicate last week, did you go into withdrawal? I was submerged in a pool of salty water. Wow. Um, I tried that experiment where you close yourself off from the world. It worked for about 15 seconds. Are you talking sensory deprivation? Yes, sir. Oh, okay. That's fabulous. Please speak into the microphone. Absolutely. I I have to say, Ted, that I, I will even have to admit that may be better than I Communicate. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I did miss the show. Okay. All right. Well, we're back, and we're back with, um, and I have to apologize to all my other co-hosts. We're back with my favorite co-host, Joe Lyman, um, who always adds so much insight to the show. Joe, thrilled you're back with us again today. Thank you very much. It's, as always, a pleasure to be here with you, Mark. Okay. Now, listen, guys. So here's the scoop, right? So I was flipping through Netflix yesterday morning. And I always kind of check out, you know, new releases and upcoming shows that are on just to see what's coming on. And I couldn't believe my eyes. I was so excited. I saw a show called Nurse Ratchet. And I was like, (laughs) oh, my God, this is what I've been waiting for my whole life. And so I'm like, first of all, it reminded me I have to show my son One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest because that's just one of the all-time great movies. But the show is about, I watched the first two episodes. I liked it so much. The show is about how Nurse Ratchet became Nurse Ratchet, Psycho Nurse Ratchet. The backstory of Nurse Ratchet. It is absolutely fabulous TV. And so there's a line in the show, and the reason why I bring this up, because it's what we're going to talk about today, there's a line in the show where the guy who runs the psychiatric hospital, his name is Dr. Hanover, who's kind of a nut job himself. I Sorry for the... That's, Bad, inappropriate, edit, uh, uh, and politically incorrect. Anyway, he's there's a line in the show where Nurse Ratchet says to him, uh, "Can you cure the mind?" And he says, "I believe you can." And then they show the frontal lobotomy scene. <laughs> so, so, so. Anyway, today we're going to be talking about, and and I know Joe Joe is uh, knows a ton about this, and that's why I thought he'd be a great guest. Today we're going to talk about change management, but we're going to talk about it in a different way. You know, a lot most of the time when companies, corporations use the term change management, change management, they're talking about organizational change, higher level change, change initiatives and things like that. But we're not going to talk about that angle as much. We're going to talk about why it is hard for people to change. And now more than ever, with COVID in the fear of the unknown and change, which we've talked about on the phone, or on the show, excuse me, it is so difficult for people to adapt to change. And one of the biggest things leaders need to do, they've always needed to do, is to help people get their arms around change, adapt to change, embrace change. And so, Joe, I gotta ask you. So one of my favorite expressions that people get very charged about is when they get frustrated with people, they'll say, the mutter under, mutter under their breath or out loud, they'll say, yeah, people don't change. So 
Is that true? Like, what's wrong with that expression? What are your thoughts on that expression, people don't change? Well, I think, I think a large part of the problem is that the moment you decide, I can't change, there's already going to be a, a, a fundamental underlying conflict in the nature of our relationship, right? And it's not just you for me, it's you for the company as well. So if you say, well, people don't change, that means the people in your company can't change. And if people in your company can't change, that means the, the, the business can't change. And if the business can't change, the business is done. Yeah, it's a great point, Joe. And, you know, I did some research before the show. And, Ted, check this out. 95% of people, by the time they're 35 years old, they have their set of memorized behaviors, emotional reactions, unconscious habits, hardwired attitudes, beliefs and perceptions. It's like a computer program in your head. So at 35 years old, that piece of data theoretically supports that it's extremely hard to change because you'd have to get a new computer program at that point. But I wanna follow up on the point Joe just made because I think it's really critical. Because you know, Mindset Go is about relationship building. And Joe said, the moment someone decides another person can't change, it creates a fundamental breakdown and obstacle in the relationship. And I, my perspective, Joe, is people change if they want to change, if they have a reason to change. And the motivation, in my mind, Joe, can't come from someone else. It has to come from within. Well, and that's the key, because what you just said, they can't change, means that you've decided what's happening inside my head. <laughs> and the moment you think you can do that, I don't need to be present anymore. You can just make those decisions on my behalf, since clearly you know as well as I do what's going on in my world. And that's the problem. Joe, how much do you think, you know, when I think of how companies communicate changes, they feel there's a couple of problems I see. First of all, often the way companies communicate changes, it's done via email. And to me, it just doesn't feel really good to just open up an email and go, okay, I guess this is how it's going to be from now on. The second flaw I see in how companies are communicating changes is now with a mixed workforce of remote and in-person, I think there's, people are forgetting, they may communicate things to the in-person group, but may forget to communicate things to the virtual group. So there's a disconnect of information that are left out. Well, and, and this is, I think, this is one of the, uh, the pitfalls that virtual learning has engendered and this move to virtual, this, to greater virtual you know, work has, has revealed this, right? Because what was the problem, what were the potential problems with virtual work before this? Uh, first of all, that virtual workers would be treated differently, not better or worse, but exactly as you say. We announce something by email to the virtual workforce, but we forget to tell the people that work in the office next to us or vice versa. And so that those, those potential problems with working from home have simply been exposed and exacerbated by the COVID situation because now, you know, companies are discovering, A, that more people could work from home than they ever thought possible, and B, maybe that the mere fact that we can send everybody home might not be an indication that that's the very best thing for human beings in the workplace. Well, what's interesting to me is, Ted, you've been an entrepreneur for how long? Or uh, Joe, you've been an entrepreneur for how long? Probably almost 35 years. Okay. So I don't know about you. I, I, I chose to become an entrepreneur for my career, <clears throat> not because I didn't like having a boss. Like I, 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 I have had a boss before. I didn't hate it. It's because I, I was allowed to, I felt like 
my creativity, my innovation, my critical thinking could flourish without. So try to put yourself, Joe, in the mindset of an employee working for a company who has just found out that there is a change. And I think a lot of times when a change is communicated to people, the default reaction is either, oh, here we go again, another change, or why? What's the point of this? Like what had to happen to have change? So my question is, if you agree with that or some of that, what should we be doing differently if people have these default reactions or are assuming they're unnecessary or don't understand the why for it? What should we do di differently to bridge that gap? Well, I <clears throat> excuse me. I have to tell you that I've seen this in, in, in the workplace. I've been part of this in the workplace when I had a boss, you know, when, you know, before going off on my own had a perfect example. Uh, by coincidence, uh, they had asked me if I would handle the, the, the corporate Christmas party that year. And it was always a big deal for us. So I said yes. And beginning in April, we put together a team. We planned everything. We, you know, we got the entertainment. We figured out where it would be held. I mean, it was, it was a huge deal. <clears throat> and then uh, in October, made a presentation to the management team. Everything good. In December, two weeks before Christmas and three weeks before the party, they brought every employee in together. They, no one had ever seen this before. Literally, you know, receptionists, everybody, telephone people, everybody had to come to this meeting in one spot. And they said, just want to let you guys know we're canceling the Christmas party. And don't look for the little Christmas gift card that you, you usually get. Mind you, this is a century company. This is a 100-year-old organization wow. that had been doing a Christmas party for the employees who had worked there for 47 years. And that was it. There was no discussion. There was no anything. So that was communicating a change. But here's the problem. In long about February, when you walked into the, the business and, and the customer walked up to one of the employees and said, how's it going? They went, lovely, they canceled our Christmas party. Like people, employees were still having this conversation more than a month wow. later. It was a disaster. And it was a disaster because it, get, it gets to the very heart of the answer to your question, which is that we received this wisdom from on high. Yeah. And that's the way most companies communicate with edicts and, and revealed wisdom from the corporate. Well, what's interesting to me is that I would bet that most leaders or employees of an organization at some point, at least a handful of times over the course of the year, mutter to themselves, I wish we could change this or I wish we could change that. So that's what's the interesting dichotomy to me because I don't, I think it's not always the change itself that bothers people. It's, it's, it's the way it's communicated. It's the way it's forced on people. It's the lack of collaboration and involvement of the people that are being affected by the change. And what's interesting is, and, and Ted, you, you'll appreciate this with your sales background, right? So one of my m most annoying objections to hear from people is, um, yeah, that's the way we've always done it. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. And you know what I say to people who say that's the way I've always done it? Most salespeople just get annoyed and give up. I say, nope, well, I said, that's great. I said, and when's the last time you've evaluated an alternative? Because to me, when's the last time you've evaluated an alternative? And they might say, I don't know, it's been two, three years. Would it be any harm to see if there are anything that's any innovations or anything that's different than what you've been using. And more often than not, it works. But my point is, 
that the whole mindset people have of grass isn't always greener, getting outside your comfort zone, that's the way we've always done it. I don't think people, when people have that mindset, they don't really have a critical thinking process or a self-assessment process to even know if the way they've always done it is even the right way in the first place. Well, you know the story of cutting the end off the ham. I, I, I do not know that. I would love to know that. So a little girl walks into the kitchen while her mother is preparing the Christmas dinner, and she sees her cut the end off the ham before she puts it in the pan. And she says, Mama, why do you cut the end off the, pan, the ham? And her mother says, well, that's the way I was taught. But, you know, Grandma's in the next room. Why don't you go ask her? So she walks out, and she says, Grandma, she says, why, why do you cut the end off the ham? And Grandma says, well, you know, honey, when your grandfather and I were first married, we used to host the family dinners at home. But we didn't have a lot. We only had one pan, and it wasn't large enough to hold the ham that we needed to buy to feed the entire family. So you had to cut the end off. <laughs> That's great. As usual, Joe, great story. Okay, we're going to go to break. We'll be back uh, for with I Communicate For Joe Lyman, I'm Mark Altman. We'll be right back. Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Okay, welcome back to I Communicate. We're talking about uh, people don't change or companies don't change or, or do they? That's what kind of our topic is today. And we're talking about different aspects of that. And um, before we get into this segment, I just, just for some cathartic coping, I'm really hoping the Celtics change because <laughs> I'm really quite disgruntled with, with the way they played last night. So I'm, I'm wishing for change from the Celtics. So anyway, I digress. So um, I want to go a different direction. You know, Ted or Joe was talking in the end of the last segment about um, qu- he would ask questions around employee engagement. And there's no question. I agree with Joe. It is absolutely the biggest problem, period, uh, sweeping the world right now, I think. So point being that we can all agree on that. But the question is, how does leadership make sure they really have captured the pulse of the level of disengagement taking place? Because see, to me, the greatest compliment, and I've said this on the show in the past, the greatest compliment a leader could get is, and Joe, I don't know if I've ever said this to you before, the greatest compliment a leader could get is if you were my boss and I felt so comfortable with you that I could communicate openly and honestly to the point that I could walk up to you unsolicited and say, hey, Joe, you know, I was thinking, you know, a a more effective way to lead may be or a more effective way to run the meeting would be, you didn't even ask me, but I feel so comfortable with your thick skin and with your openness to frank communication that I would feel that way. And my point in telling you that is if if leadership wants to be on the pulse of the level of disengagement that's taking place, have you created a culture of open, honest communication that employees feel safe enough to tell you that? Well, and and the key to what you just described is, is that you can't walk into that situation. You must intentionally create it. 
it it's it doesn't simply exist of its own accord right it's not spontaneous in nature you have to decide that this is what you are going to do and this gets into uh, what we were just talking about in terms of death and decay and birth right because we're talking about natural cycles here i have a, a good friend dr jeff sue who's who works with this and, and and regenerative ideas and and the idea of something called autopoiesis and that's the idea of what creates itself how do how do organizations like natural constructs create themselves, right? Because every living thing, whether it's a business or a plant, has to follow these same rules that nature sets for us. And, and the, uh, the idea of creating the open conversation that you described can only come about naturally because it's something that you took the time to foster and grow. So if you hire me as an employee and you say, this is the kind of, of communication that I want to encourage, then yeah, then, then you're putting your money where your mouth is. But if you just think that you can you know, tell people that this is what you want and then hope that it exists, it may be a disappointment to some leaders. Okay, so I have to say a couple of things. Ted, are you with me on this? Because I need you here for a minute. All right. Okay. So first of all, Joe and Ted, did you guys remember like when you were growing up? I don't know if you've ever experienced where you would hang out with certain people, even as adults, this could happen, where their language that's used or the slang or the kind of words, you kind of pick them up because you're around the people so often. You sure, know, you sounds pick them, cool. Right. But like a lot of times it's not good. Like the people, the, the habits you're picking up aren't great. This guy, first of all, let me just tell you something you missed last week. Joe Lyman found a way to incorporate Luddites into the show. Okay, so first of all, you missed that, okay? The second thing I want to say is, I just want to make sure I got this word right. Did you say autopoiesis? Autopoiesis. Okay, so not only do I not know what that means, but what, I'm going to ask Joe what it means, but I just want to say it's the opposite when I'm around him. Not only do I learn something every time I'm around him, but I feel like I get smarter, my vocabulary increases. Please tell our audience about autopoiesis. I mean, that's great stuff. So, so this is this is the work of an organization called In Rhythm, okay. and 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 their focus is the idea that that organizations have a natural cohesiveness to them, mm-hmm. right? That they are born, that they develop, and they die, and aspects of it, right? So, w- when we talk about change management, one of the reasons that I was inspired to take this in this direction was because you know death and decay are part of organizational structures. If we pretend that this mm-hmm. can't happen to us, right? Eastman Kodak, we talk about how you know, digital photography wiped out film. But what most people don't know is that Eastman Kodak actually invented digital photography. And one of their scientists who had put this together took this to, to, to uh, you know, top management and said, hey, look at this. And they said, yeah, we're not going to put any time and money into that. No one's ever going to take a digital image of anything. And, and so it's, I mean, it, it's not like something from outside came and, and, and took them over they were wiped out by the fact that they didn't even notice what they had in front of them. Well, I love that because what you got me thinking about when you said that is when I was saying before, would your teams feel comfortable saying that they're disengaged or feeling some kind of attitude behavior that is feeling disengaged? And when you create a culture where you're basically, if I heard you right, Joe, where you're creating a culture where you're just putting out there, look, we don't have to hide from death and decay. We don't have to pretend it's not happening. It's normal. It's natural. So guess what? If you feel disengaged, if you feel like your attitude or mindset has shifted, tell me. 
You know, what means I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to fire you. I'm not going to be angry. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. I can't help you. I can't support you unless you're willing to tell me about how you're feeling and the change and the death and the decay. I love that show. And, and that's the essence of autopoiesis, right? It's the idea that life supplies its own conditions. You know, for years, people talked about how you had to find a planet that looked like Earth a lot in order to sustain life. But the conditions of life on Earth are what create the conditions that sustain life. If you eliminated life, the atmosphere would kind of, you know, it would disappear. So it's not, you, you can't separate them, right? And, and when you're having these conversations with employees and you can say, what do we need to invest in? What do we need to grow? What needs to be born from the ideas and the capabilities of this company? But those are real conversations that take time and they only happen on purpose. Yeah, and, and I want to I I talk about another aspect of measuring employee engagement. And that is something that a lot of companies do. Uh, and those are assessments. You do employee engagement assessments. And, you know, one of the problems with assessments that I find, well, there's a few problems with them. First of all, the questions that are typically included in assessment, if you're going to ask the question to the employees, you have to be prepared to do something about it depending on how they answer. So don't ask it. Wait, 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 what? Right? Don't <laughs> ask it if you're not going to do anything about it. You right? mean it's, it's not enough just to ask the question? We have to actually be interested in responding right. to this? Now, second, and even deeper than don't ask it if you're not doing anything about it, Senior leadership teams need to ask themselves the question, if I ask you, do you feel like you enjoy working with your fellow members of your team, okay, then if, it's, if that question is asked to 30 people, how many of the 30 have to say no to make you say, we've got a real problem? And it's an arbitrary subjective number. Like, Joe might say 15, I might say 10. But the point is, you have to have some kind of metric. Because without the metric, what? So, and then, and here's the thing, right? If only five of the 30 say no, then what do we do? Because that's not maybe a big enough number to make wholesale changes and do leadership training and, and professional development. But we still have five people that seem to be disgruntled and disengaged. So, so what do we do with them? And I think this is the whole thing about assessments. Look, I have created what I call very purposeful, intentional, homegrown assessments because I'm sick and tired of assessments that really don't create a lot of change and, and people don't do anything with the results. So my point is, you got to be prepared to do something about it. You got to know what the metric is that's going to motivate you to do something about it. And if the, if the percentage is small enough, you've still got to follow up with people and address the people who were comfortable enough to express it in the first place. Well, that's the key. You've got 10,000 employees. It turns out 1,000 of them are unhappy. That's 10%. Do you just go, oh, oh, we're okay. 90% of our employees feel reasonably engaged. So the other 1,000%, eh, we're not going to pay too much. Exactly. And, and I think your, 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 your assessment is spot on in the sense that it's not enough to ask the question. We have to know what we're going to do as a result of people being willing to share the answer. Yeah. And Joe, you know, when you talk about 1,000 or 10%, you know what else is really key on an assessment is making people put their name and email, right? Because if you make that optional, right, a lot of people will argue, well, I'd rather keep it optional because I think more people may be open and honest if they don't have to put their name and email to it. I actually feel the opposite. You know, if people put their name and email to it, you're getting authentic and genuine feedback because they had to put their name and email to it. 
So I, I think you're correct. And in addition to that, when we there, there's nothing wrong with anonymity under certain circumstances. But under normal circumstances, you don't want your employees to be anonymous, and you don't want them to feel anonymous. So by asking them and telling them, as as, as you pointed out up front, this isn't going to get you in trouble. This isn't going to get you. You know, there's no punishment involved here. The entire purpose behind this this effort behind this this opportunity is to get better for everybody. Yeah, but I want to ask you something, Joe, because I know you're a great father as well. And you just said something that I always I always think about. So you said, reiterate to them, hey, you're not going to get in trouble, you know, and so on and so forth. So what I want you to think about in between this next break is, because I'm going to ask you this when we come out of break is. All right. You know, when you put it out there, look, we really want your open, honest feedback. This is not about punishing or getting in trouble. We want to know how you feel. That's an incredibly important step, no question. But then the person has to believe you. So my question to you, I want you to think about in the break is, how do you do that part two where now you've said the right thing, but you can tell by their body language or reaction, they're like, yeah, okay. So when we come back from our next break, we're going to talk about that with Joe. For Joe Lyman and I Communicate, I'm Mark Altman. We'll be right back. Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Okay, welcome back to iCommunicate. Uh, here with Joe Lyman. If you'd like to call into the show, the number is 508-871-7000. That's 508-871-7000. So, um, <clears throat> so before the break, we were talking about some of the key uh, components of effective change management and the communication of it. And um, I just want to bring up one other follow-up point that's really important. You know, when people are uh, adapting to change, there is something that needs to be done. And a lot of companies that Joe and I work with have multiple levels of leadership at their company. So when the senior level of leadership communicates change to mid-management, you're now expecting mid-management to take that message to the rest of the company. And many times mid-management doesn't know how to articulate that in an effective way. So one of the things I teach senior leadership to do is how to frame that message, how to model it, how to walk through what that conversation would look like with a team and an individual. And so I just, I, I bring that up because it's something that's oft forgotten, but I have to just say one funny thing about it. My favorite thing that mid-management does, and I'm, you guys will understand very quickly, I'm being very sarcastic. My favorite thing when mid-management communicates change from above is when they say, yeah, HR made us do it. You know, or, or, or yep, the CEO told us this is what we have to do. And I think to myself, talk about losing credibility and respect. First of all, by you not taking accountability, and you not supporting the company in the decision, what that basically does is it makes you look like to your own team, you don't really have any authority, power, or say because you're not even on board with the message. Right, Joe? Absolutely. And you've just provided an absolutely perfect illustration of how they can feel justified in behaving when you tell them to do something. 
Yep, that, that's what my manager told me to do. Yep. Yeah, so I'm going to tell the customer. Whenever the customer's unhappy, I'm going to be like, yeah, well, you know, that's, <laughs> they tell us we got to do it this way. You know, it's just it's really stupid. And, Joe, I love that you said that because I, um, I am really hard on customer service people because I know what a core value it is to provide great service. I expect great service wherever I go. And when I get it, I recognize and will acknowledge the person by screaming from the mountaintops. When I don't get it, I'll do the same thing because I'm so annoyed. And when a customer service person goes into robotic mode and said, well, that's just our policy or that's just someone told me, I just feel like, are you kidding? Like you're not even a human being when you're telling me that. You're like, you become a robot to me. So, all right. So Joe, with that said, uh, one of the things I know we want to tackle on this show is you know, self-awareness is tough. So for an organization to have the self-awareness that they may need a Mark Altman, a Joe Lyman, a Mindset Go to support their change management initiatives, if they do that part, if they do step one, you and I are like, wow, you're way ahead of everybody else. But my question for you, Joe, is if they do have the self-awareness and they do recognize they need help with change management, you're on the phone, you're consulting with them, what are you asking them? Well, it's... I think the most important thing is to is to control the conversation in terms of what does it mean to change. And I think it, this is going to sound a little startling perhaps, but the first question I would ask if, if, if an organization calls us up and asks that question is, what needs to die? Hmm. And, and this is the idea that, first of all, <clears throat> you know, we describe businesses sometimes as a well-oiled machine. Mm. But in the end, businesses are not machines. They are collections of human beings. And human beings are not machines. So the moment we mechanize our conversation, we're already in trouble. And we fail to recognize that in business, as in life, something needs to die. So, and, and that sounds, maybe that sounds a little strange, but what do you need to stop doing in your organization? What doesn't serve you anymore? What have you been doing? What have you, are you still cutting the end off the ham? And now you can stop doing that. Well, Joe, and just to confirm that I hear you correctly, because I think it's actually a brilliant way to frame it, to tell you the truth. It, it creates some shock value, but sometimes you need to create some shock value. So when you say what needs to die, I feel like you're referring to four things, and I want to make sure I haven't left anything out. People, processes, behaviors, and habits. Yeah, and when you say people, we don't mean who do we need to take out, just to be clear. Just to, <laughs> <laughs> just to clarify. All right, it. okay, yeah. if yeah. you insist. <laughs> but, but you're right, right? So what is it about the organization that we are done with and we should be done with? And, and that's a little terrifying sometimes to people to, to accept that. But there's, 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 and there's more, right? We recognize that in the natural world, decay is a part of the regenerative process. But what is decaying in our organization? And how do we learn from the things that we're done with, right? Because organizations will often say, oh, this isn't working. We need to stop doing it. But the problem is that's the end of the conversation. They just issue an edict. There you go. There we go again with that word. And we say, we're not going to do this anymore. But can we take value from what we've learned from doing this? Can we take value from what the individuals have contributed while we were doing this? So, Joe, let me ask you this, because a couple of things came up in my mind as you were saying that. First of all, I love the word decay because it really paints a very powerful picture. Um, but my question is, um, we deal with, you know this, we, companies are so used to thinking about the bottom line, right? Which is fine, 
Okay, we all need to think about the bottom line. The problem I have is if you really ask people how they know they have a problem, okay, most people really, unless it's like financial metrics or KPIs that you keep for sales and things, a lot of companies don't really have a system to really measure the depth or, or level of the problem. And so here's what I'm saying, that in a change management situation, what what are they supposed to be noticing? Like, what are the things, the behaviors that you said, hey, I'll tell you what, you know you have a change management problem if you are noticing, observing, hearing blank, blank, and blank. What would you say to that? I would say if if you're experiencing what so many companies in, in the West, and not just in the United States, but in the West in general, are experiencing, which is the disengagement of your employees. If your employees are not fully engaged, there's a problem. And, and I'm just going to make that a blanket statement, which, which means ultimately that for about, you know, 60 to 80% of companies, there's a problem because we have created well-oiled machines, but we haven't addressed the human issues. And we haven't gone, and, and when we were talking earlier, we talked about top-down communication, right? The CEO, the, the C-suite issues this change edict to the workers. But how did we get there? Did three people sit in a room for a couple of days or did they go on a retreat and now suddenly we're going to announce these changes to people? We haven't talked to the people themselves. Okay, well, when we come back for our last segment, we're going to talk about that and we're going to continue the conversation. For Joe Lyman, I'm Mark Altman. We'll be right back. Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Okay, welcome back to I Communicate for our final segment. Uh, always a pleasure to have Joe with us today. And uh, before I get him to answer the question I ask, I do want to bring up one other quick thing about different ways to um, measure employee engagement and things like that. One of the things I've experienced over the years in talking to leaders is I want them to ask a question and not be afraid of the answer. And let me be specific of what I mean. So if you're trying to understand the different ways your team, your individuals on your team want to be recognized or appreciated, okay? So let's say, Joe, you're the leader and you said to them, you said to me, hey, I got a question for you. If I could do anything for you in the world to make you feel recognized and appreciated, what would it be? And I tell them to ask that. And then I, the response I get is, I'm not going to ask that because what if they say something I can't do? And this is what I say. I say, so let's say the person says, I want you to buy me a new car because I've been working so hard. I would say, well, ha, 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 I can't do that. But realistically, what's something I can really do for you? And the reason why I take that approach is because when you make it at such a broad level for people, it really stimulates their imagination and gets them thinking at a much higher level. And even if they say something unrealistic, by me asking the question, I didn't promise to do it. So in an employee engagement assessment, if I said to you, are you uncomfortable with your salary? Or do you know, do you think you're not paid properly? Then if 
80% of the organization said, yeah, no, I don't think I'm paid properly. Well, then that doesn't necessarily mean I have to give everybody a raise. It does, in my mind, if you didn't set the expectations before the assessment was given. So if an assessment is given and you put it out to the people taking the assessment, look, we're not making any promises. We're trying to get a collective understanding about where everybody's head is at on these issues. What I can promise you is you will get responded to individually or collectively as a team based on the feedback you've provided. See, I think if you put that out there in the beginning, then people can still feel like they're answering honestly without a set expectation. So I just wanted to add that because I do think that's an important piece. Don't be afraid to ask a question because you think you're obligated to do what the answer is unless you've told them you're committing to it. So with that said, Joe, I asked you the question, you did such a good job in that conversation telling people they have nothing to fear because they're not gonna be judged, fired, whatever. So that's absolutely the first time. But Joe, like, what if I don't look like I believe you? How do you, how do you? how do you give me the comfort level to actually believe you? Wow, that's a great and unbelievably important question. And I would have answered it, but I didn't think you really wanted to hear what I had to say. No, seriously. So, <laughs> that's good. So, so the, the and, and you've already answered the question in what you were just saying a moment ago, actually. You said, set the expectation. You said, have a conversation about why I'm asking this question. So we can't just go in and take an existing relationship and think that we can suddenly turn it around. Because what if you've asked this question before? What if, what if the organization has done this survey of employees every year for the past five years? And for the past five years, absolutely nothing has ever changed. So now you go in and you say, no, I really, really want to know this time. I'm going to pay close attention this time. No one is going to believe you, right? You, you are clearly at yes, that point great. the boy that cried wolf way too often. So you have to lay the groundwork. And it's interesting that when, when you said metrics, it, 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 it caused me to think of something. The guy that basically invented the idea of metrics is a man named W. Edwards Deming, okay. the father of modern quality. Uh, we could tell a long story about how America kicked him out. He went to Japan, and that's why Toyota became, you know, the largest car company in the world. Shocker. Yeah. So, but, but Deming said that the most important things in an organization can't even be measured. Wait, wait, what was that? The guy that invented measurement and metrics said the most important things in an organization can't be measured. He also said something that I think is critical to all of this discussion about change. He said that the, the, the purpose to work was joy. And, and that seems funny and perhaps even a little disconnected from what we're talking about. But are we creating a workspace where we're concerned about whether or not employees enjoy their work? Are we creating a workspace where management enjoys working with the organization and wants to see what's possible? Well, I, I love that story. And frankly, um, I got to tell you, you made me think when you said that, Joe, about um, I love when leadership says to me, I need our, our team to take a little more initiative. I, that, that's one of my personal favorite. We need them to take a little more initiative. So when you say Deming said the most important things can't be measured, you know, the question I would ask someone who says, I need my team to, to take more initiative is, well, how do you measure initiative? Like, what is your rules of initiative? Because I could do things already that I think I'm taking initiative and you don't even see it. 
And my point is, I think the word initiative ties into exactly what you just said. If you have passion in your job, if you feel like you're a direct contributor to your job, if you feel like you are part of a team, a cohesive team that is making an impact, you're probably going to take initiative. Exactly. Right? Exactly. There's a story of, of one of the, uh, I, I don't recall who told the story, but he walked into NASA one time and there was a gentleman sweeping the floor. And he said, oh, he said, what do you do here? And he said, I'm putting a man on the moon. <laughs> I mean, when you feel that level of contribution in terms of what your work does and the outcomes that it creates, this is, this is unleashing potential. So when somebody like, and my question when somebody says, I'd like them to show more initiative is what's missing? What is it you think they haven't done? And have you had this conversation with them, right? Are you, and, and this gets back to the natural autopoiesis again, right? What needs to grow? What do we need to invest in to develop? But if you are making these decisions once again from on high and issuing the, you know, the, the communiques to, to the staff down below, you're missing opportunities already, right? We're, we're not finding out what the people that do the job every day have to say about doing the job every day. Joe, the problem is everything you said just makes perfect sense, but unfortunately we don't have time to do what you're asking because we're all so busy and we all have all these um, untested or unqualified priorities that we've given ourselves each day. So yeah, I wish I could do that. I just don't really have time, you know? You know, uh, my, my only response to that is that a guy named Steve Jobs and some of his engineers wandered into the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, Xerox Park, and saw a microcomputer with graphical user interfaces and a mouse sitting there. And they said, what are you guys doing with this? And they went, well, we don't really know what we're going to do with that. We don't, we, we don't have any time to work on that. And he said, do you mind if we use some of this stuff? I just love your point about um, putting people on the moon because... Obviously, that's an extreme, but the point is, is if you were to poll and talk to people, either in a leadership role or non-leadership role at certain companies, and you said, how do you directly contribute to this company? How do you feel you directly contribute to this company? I think a lot of people would struggle beyond the, like the, like the um, obvious answers, like based on their job description or whatever. I think they would really struggle to know, and if you are someone that really can't doesn't understand how you're directly impacting your team, your boss, your company. That doesn't make you unusual or a bad person. It's time to ask and it's time to get some clarity on that because that's totally going to affect your level of employee engagement. Well, and you know, there's a name for people that don't know where they fit in in an organization. Mostly we call them employees. <laughs> oh, boy. So, okay. So look, Joe, final thoughts before we wrap up today. Um, you know, I want to end with, look, at the end of the day, if you're on the phone with a company right now and they're trying to do some inner reflection of, do we really have a problem here or not? Your advice to them would be what? Talk to the people in your organization, not some of them, all of them make this a multi-stakeholder environment. I hate the word stakeholder. It's got so many connotations that I don't approve of attached to it. But make it make everybody's opinion vital, 
right? Recognize that you're not building a better machine, you're building a better organization, and therefore some of the rules that apply to the rest of nature, which ultimately apply to companies as well, have to be observed. What needs to die? What can we learn from things that we should stop doing? The idea of decay, right? Decay is carbon goes back into the atmosphere. In organizations, it's information that returns to the organization. And, and I'm just going to add on to what Joe said as my final thought for today. I agree with him. That's the way to go. And here's the, here's the second piece. You've got to prepare for that conversation before, during, and after. And so the before is what questions do I want to ask? What reactions do I anticipate getting? During, okay, what are the outcomes I'm looking for in this conversation so I make sure I get them? And after is the follow-up. Because if you're going to take people's time, make it feel like it was worth it and it was meaningful. Because if it's just to get information selfishly for you data and there's no follow-up or activity, it's not right. So before, during, and after, what's the plan? Joe, loved having you, man. Thanks again for joining. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure to be here with you. Always a genuine learning experience. All right. For I Communicate, Joe Lyman, my favorite producer in the world, Ted. I'm Mark Altman. Thanks, we'll Mark. see you next time. I communicate with your host, Mark Altman. Join us again each week at this time on Full Service Radio, WCRN.